All right, so welcome back, everyone, and welcome to the final episode in this series for Philippine Area Studies. So this has been a pretty long five months of discussing about issues regarding the Philippines, its history, and something, something, whatnot. And we are now at the final lap, so you say, uh, the last portion of our uh, educational series. Uh, we'll talk about the Philippines in its entirety focusing on particular topics and right now we will be dealing with some current issues that exist around the philippines particularly on something that is constantly uh being recurred in terms of philippine foreign relations and that is focusing on the topic that is the west philippine sea although you you might be curious or you may wonder why this is the last episode there are still so many issues that are needed to be discussed or expounded like discussions on poverty discussions on uh elitism and and and, and the like and why do we focus on foreign policy so one of these very interesting points really is something something that is uh somewhat underrated in the discussions of philippine foreign policy is this recurring problem of the marine time disputes this is constantly being downplayed by the other country that we are opposed against and the discussion of this status in other in other fields of the country is somewhat i would say in my personal view of what i'm reading in in terms of philippines that it's somewhat constantly overlooked and easily easily overlooked regarding uh, foreign relations and especially in the sovereignty of our personal water so that's why it's very important to really go deep down in learning about the history and also the misinformation that exists in between there's there's a lot of talks really about uh misinformation about this certain issue that is somewhat being buck passed by one president and another and trying to at least misinform the public and really aiming to create a solution with these with this issue and thus the importance and the urgency of really discussing in historical detail about this topic that is what we now know as the west philippine sea marine time dispute so right now tonight i am accompanied by my students of is4 that have researched and uh gather information that will tell us about what this issue is in particular and would provide with us their own insights and their own understandings with the problem especially as to why this problem has been constantly recurring in the local arena and as well as the international arena so for tonight allow me allow them to introduce themselves so who's gonna introduce themselves first all right, so, so, okay. Hello, good evening, everyone. My name is Cherry Vigo, and I am a second year student studying AB International Studies. Um, good evening, good day, or whatever, wherever it is. Konbanwa konnichiwa. I am Emmanuel Jan Odidal, a second year student taking up Bachelor of Arts in International Studies, and I am under this subject by none other than Mr. Lanef Cornelius Arce. All right, so thank you guys for that brief and very detailed introduction about brief and detailed. It can exist on both. So about yourself. So tell us now what you have actually researched and have discovered about this constantly problematic issue on maritime disputes of our country. 
Okay, so to start, I would like to discuss about the foreign policy of former President Gloria Macapagal Arroyo and her and her foreign policy actually revolves around her so-called eight realities. So the first reality is that the United States, China and Japan have a determining influence in the security situation and economic evolution of East Asia. The second reality is that the Philippine foreign policy decisions have to be made in the context of the ASEAN. Third, the international Islamic community becomes more and more important to the Philippines. Fourth, the coming years will see the redefinition of the role of multilateral and interregional organizations like WTO in promoting common interests. Fifth, the defense of the nation's sovereignty and the protection of its environment and natural resources can be carried out to the extent that it gets others to respect its rights over maritime territory. Number six, the country's economic growth will continue to require a lot of direct foreign investments. Number seven, a country as beautiful as the Philippines can benefit most quickly from international tourism. And eight, our overseas Filipinos will continue to play a critical role in the country's economic and social stability. So the first point I want to tackle regarding these realities is that Gloria Arroyo wanted to be in good terms with the rising powers of the East and not to remain reliant with the United States. So this is actually an example of a power balancing wherein a state is extending its connections with other world powers instead of relying on one hegemon. So the advantages of power balancing in this context is that the interests of the Philippines and its citizens will remain the priority despite contradicting interests with the United States due to other countries' cooperation and support. And it could also be a means to prove that the Philippines can collaborate with other countries in the region. So an example of contradicting interests between the Philippines and the United States is the war in Iraq, wherein the Philippines is torn between upholding the alliance with the United States or to prioritize the OFWs living and working in Iraq. The second advantage is that it can invite more investors that can help the country survive the economic recession that affected two-thirds of the world because U.S. investors or American investors cannot shoulder everything and cannot and the country cannot expect the United States to help us all the time. So it is better that we open our doors to other foreign investors, to other countries to keep our economy stable and afloat. So the third advantage is that it also becomes a great opportunity to advertise the Philippines to the rest of the world through tourism by signing treaties and agreements with other nations. So this is actually related to the previous advantage wherein there will be more foreign investors, so meaning there's foreign investments that comes in the country that can generate funds to pave the way for developments. And if there are developments in the country, there will be influx of tourists because tourists would believe that the country is secure. And if there are many tourists that's com- coming in the country, then there will, be, there will be more businesses to cater th- to their needs and wants. And more businesses means more job offers for the Filipinos. So despite these advantages of, of Gloria, King, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo's foreign policy, what went wrong? So it is uh, a well-known controversy that there's a maritime dispute with China. The Philippines actually has territorial um, disputes with China in the West Philippine Sea. And it is unfortunately, it unfortunately started during the administration of Arroyo when 
the former president actually agreed to the controversial joint mar- marine seismic undertaking with China in 2004, which allowed China and later on Vietnam to explore not only the Philippine-occupied islands in the disputed mineral-rich Spratlys Island, but areas that are clearly Philippine territory. So, what caused for this shift of Arroyo from being a an ally of U.S. to being friendly with China? So, the story started like this. So, early in his first term, United States President George W. Bush embraced President Arroyo, inviting her to the White House for a rare visit in 2003. Relations went into a deep chill at the highest levels, however, when Arroyo dropped out of Bush's coalition of the willing for the war in Iraq during Bush's hard-fought bid to win a second term after Bush digested intelligence briefings outlining allegations of Arroyo's fraudulent actions in her own presidential campaign. So because of this ongoing conflict between two presidents of two allied nations, China seized the opportunity. So they actually invited President Gloria Arroyo to Beijing and gave her lavish hospitality as well as her entourage and actually gave funds for the construction of the North Luzon Railway as well as the, as well as the South Luzon Railway and also offered uh, to help in the, uh, in, in the construction of the National Broadband Network by linking 2,295 national offices and 24,549 barangays or villages and municipal offices using the Chinese telecom provider ZTE. So the JSMU or the Joint Seismic Maritime Undertaking opened several channels to Beijing that enabled China to spread its influence and consequently divided ASEAN for any talks on maritime disputes to be settled. Because under the JSMU, it is not only China and the Philippines which is involved, there's also Vietnam. And Vietnam actually is the leader, it's actually the state that is really adamant in settling the West Philippine Sea controversies because they are also, um, they also have certain territories that China is trying to take. And because of this, um, because of this agreement, Vietnam was passive. Let's say Vietnam had no choice but to honor it, and China gradually, um, gradually settled the disputes with their own, in their own way, without giving any advantage to other nations. So, what can we learn from this um, mistake by Arroyo? So, the Philippines was actually criticized for breaking ranks with the ASEAN, and the Philippines con- and the Philippine Congress began investigations into the JMSU and questioned whether Philippine national security interests had been bartered away. The result was the passage of the Archipelago Baseline Act in February 2010, which delineates Philippine sovereign interests and restricts the government from entering into future JMSU-like agreements without due process and transparency. So this actually one of the biggest scandals during the, the Arroyo administration. And this scandal or controversy actually um, transitioned itself with into the new administration of Benigno Simeon Aquino III. So during the administration of Aquino, pressure and expectations are building up as an urgency to settle the West Philippine Sea territorial dispute crisis. So Aquino was actually hesitant to take rash actions because first, 
China, after all, is the Philippines' second biggest trading partner based on the latest government statistics released in September 2015. And Aquino was afraid that if he uh, do something or fight against China, we would the Philippines would suffer economically through its trade with China. And the second, China too is a homeland of at least 1.5% of the Philippines' population. Many of these Chinese Filipinos wield huge influence in business and other spheres, as in the case of the two of the Philippines' richest men, Henry C. and Lucio Tan. But aside from those two, the the most or the most of Filipinos in China are actually OFWs. And as a president, Aquino should also think about their welfare because these Filipinos would actually be subjected to discrimination, incrimination, and even deportation. That would also greatly affect the Philippines' economy because the country relies on the dollar remittances of our OFWs. So the third point is that Aquino himself hails from a Chinese family and the Kuangku clan to which he belongs comes from the line of Chinese immigrant Ko Yu Huan who moved to the Philippines in 1861. So when the Chinese learned about this Chinese ancestry of President Aquino, uh, it actually fueled like anger in Beijing because they felt like Aquino was betraying the Chinese when in fact Aquino was actually doing what he's supposed to do as a president of the Philippines and as a Filipino himself by prioritizing the interests of the of the Philippines as a country and also of its citizens. So Aquino's policy can actually be summarized in, into this quote. So this is actually what he said during one of his um, speeches. But being confident that the Filipino are there, that if you present the facts to them, they will see how reasonable our position, how logical, how correct. We can count on their support. So with this, oh, with this, he will be known as the president who brought China to court. So Aquino, as the chief architect of the Philippine foreign policy during his administration, filed an arbitration case against China over the West Philippine Sea on January 22, 2013. The Aquino administration initiated these arbitration proceedings after a standoff between Philippine and Chinese vessels in the disputed Panatag Shoal, or internationally known as the Scarborough Shoal, in the West Philippine Sea in April 2012. The case is pending before an arbitral tribunal at the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, Netherlands. So the effects of Aquino's action of fighting fighting China. So the first is that the Philippines stopped bilateral or one-on-one talks with China, which is, by the way, the means preferred by China to settle the maritime role. Because China doesn't want to involve any other countries because they want to keep everything low-key. Because China is afraid that other countries, when, that when other countries will be involved, uh, they will Philippines will have a better footing. And that's actually quite true because when Philippines stopped their bilateral talks with China, the ASEAN became more united and more engaged because they felt like if the Philippines was is fighting for their rights, then us too, we could do the same. And because of this, uh, the Philippines proved that they were serious about the issue and the Americans actually saw that. And this also marked the shift again no, from China, Philippine China during the royal period or royal administration during the Aquino administration the Philippines pivot again or shifted again towards America and this led to the signing of the Philippine US Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement or EDCA in 2014 then wherein the EDCA gives American troops greater access to Philippine military facilities 
and this marked a newer uh, relationship with the U.S. and um, this actually proved that the Americans still holds a great influence in the Philippines. So going back, the the results of the arbitral tribunal of the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague, the results of that hearing will be discussed by my partner, Mr. Emmanuel Didal. Thank you very much, Jerry, for that wonderful talk, shall I say. So, for the tale of the tape in the Permanent Court of Arbitration, Philippines versus China, this was held in the Hague, Netherlands on from, I mean from, the 22nd of January 2013 until the 12th of Ju- July 2016. The Philippines claimed that the nine-dash line is invalid. It violates the UNCLOS agreements on on EEZs and territorial seas, and most of the features in the West Philippine Sea cannot sustain life, thus are entitled to territorial seas, or entitled to us. While China has strongly and aggressively asserted its rights on the using on the Philippine Sea using the Nine Nash Line. But China did not show up in the arbitration nor did, did agree to it because they refused to particip- participate in the arbitration and they stated that Philippines and China signed several treaties that declared bilater- bilateral negotiation negotiations are to be used to solve disputes. So as we all know, this ran from for three years and the verdict the verdict was given on July 12, 2016. The tribunal, the tribunal said that China's claims is invalid. They, their historical nine-dash line is null because Scarborough Shoal is a rock entitled to a 12 nautical mile territorial sea. So this means that Scar- Scarborough Shoal is ours because if you can look into a nautical map, you can see that Scarborough Shoal is more nearer to our baselines which is which is point of reference which is palawan while china is ma- miles miles and miles away from scarborough show the arbitration also also shocked shocked loosely using shock shock loosely the participants because it also gave verdicts with to almost all of all features within the west philippine sea so, majority of the Spratlist features, including the ones that China has been has China took from us and they reclaimed, are mainly islands because these cannot sustain life and are entitled to territorial seas. So this means that these islands are actually ours if the UNCLOS is or the United Nations United Nation Convention on the Laws of the Sea is to be applied. But as we all know, China's reaction—they did not accept the ruling. They—they marked as null, and they did not honor the ruling. So this may be a victory for us, but we all know that this will be carried on to the next president, Mr. His Excellency Rodrigo Roa Duterte. So during his speeches, in his elect, during campaign and. Even post-election, during when he was when he is president, he de- he said that Aquino failed to save West Philippine Sea from the Chinese, and thus he he more or less failed in the eyes of the Filipino people. But the weird thing is that he declared that he will have an independent foreign foreign policy, as stated in the Article Two, Section 
7 of the Constitution, and he and he adopted a more friendly stance with China. With China, he announced that his foreign policy will not be dependent on the U.S. in favor of relations with China and Russia. This is very clear as marked by his visits in Beijing in 2016, declare, specific, declaring in that visit that it will be China, Russia, and the Philippines against the world. His visit on the APEC summit in 2016 in Lima, Peru, where Duterte saw Putin, talked, he talked to Putin, and he praised his skills and called Putin his idol. Last year, last year Duterte visited Russia, and as you know, as what Bongo reported, the visit was fruitful as Filipino business executives and the Russian counterparts signed agreements and the security relations between Russia and the Philippines were strengthened. So to understand Duterte's foreign policy, we must also look on how it has affected the international landscape and also PH-US relations. So as we all know, he, he had his drug wars, the Marabi siege, and recently the arrest of Maria Reza. So first, his drug war. His drug war drew support and luck from the other states. For example, Japan supported Duterte through financial aid for drug rehabilita- rehabilitation centers, while President Don- former President Donald, U.S. President Donald Trump stated that supported while stating that Duterte is doing things the right way. For, for the cast of detractors, the European Union trend threatened to end tariff-free export for certain products due to the blo- bloody methods of fighting drugs and the U- UN Human Rights Council took up action in probe Duterte and the Philippines for the abuses committed during the war. Next is the Marawi siege. Various nations aided, uh, aided us human, through humanitarian aid and martial or military aids such as Australia, US, and Russia delivering arms while South Korea, Turkey, Singapore delivering humanitarian aid to those who were displaced. And more recently is the arrest of Maria Ressa, which the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights reacted that it is a pattern of intimidation versus the Philippine press. The EU Diplomatic Corps, the European External Action Service, st- stated that it raised doubts over the freedom of expression in the country, and the US Department of State expressed concern, but Malacanang replied with warning with an- another setback in USPH relations. Speaking of the setback, we all know as of the moment, PH-US relations are strained. This all, this all started when former PNP chief, now Senator Bato de la Rosa's visa was cancelled by the U.S. This prompted Duterte to act on the Visiting Forces Agreement last February 2020. So we all know that they, they, fought, they fought hard. They fought hard on that. And as of, and as of June... The switch suddenly flipped as the cancellation of the Visiting Forces Agreement was suspended until December but has been recently extended last November 11. And re- more recently, on September 2020, Duterte 
being the, the Chinese supporter, suddenly we have reaffirmed the the PCA's ruling on the West Philippine Seas, saying that it is now a part of international law. And since we are in a pandemic, as we all know, his stance on closing the borders, he did not accept that suggestion because he know he fears for a diplo- for diplomat diplomatic strains with China, and he fears that all all that he did for the preservation of their dip- diplomatic relations will be lost. So to summarize the Duterte's foreign policy, his foreign policy is now different in a sense that he shook up the status quo of continuing a strong diplomatic relationship with the U.S. and instead focused on two states, which which the U.S. sees as a threat, China and Russia. We may find this approach of diplomacy strange, but it is not unusual for what Arroyo has done, but he has added Russia into the mix. His stances on various matters regarding the security of the country has been confusing, to say at the very least, as he changes his views from time to time, which has led to him to be critiqued as an impulsive diplomat. And that will be all regarding the ruling in the hug and the third and an ov- overlook on the Duterte's foreign policy. Alright, so thank you guys for that very detailed discussion on the history of the West Philippine Sea. And uh, you have actually presented a, a a lengthy case of review, particularly starting from uh, its traces of the first ex- joint exploration that is the one initiated by Gloria Arroyo. And in fact, it's uh, it started really as a very promising ordeal that would pursue for more bilateral and strengthening relations of, of Asian states, particularly the East Asian states. However, it really quickly backfired that uh, the Filipinos did not really expect it like it started out as a good deal like as you've discussed and then it, it turned out to be okay it's it's my waters now <laughs> like where's the joint in that exploration if uh, the exploration itself warrants a more isolated sense of exploration right it's the biggest irony is to really it's uh, it's it's sad being part of the periphery in the situation since uh, most of the bilateral agreements is not bilateral in a sense but more of manipulation from the core or the semi-periphery to the periphery states so i have some of a few questions perhaps i think it could be uh something that is already discussed by you all so something that perhaps it's overlooked but for me my, my first question is that since knowing it's pretty much clear in, in the Hague ruling and in how the joint exploration started in basis. What is it that, in, in your case, in, in what you have researched, why do you think China has the audacity of claiming the West Philippine Seas aside from its its notoriously very inaccurate nine-dash line? And what really drives them to, to, to secure these waters? What's, what do you think is a more rational basis for them? In fact, if it's the, the nine dash line alone, it, it would be something that is very funny and very, uh, very un IR, really. 
just like just drawing nine dashes in the map does not make it your your land but what is china's rationalization for the nine dash lion um actually uh, i think sir uh, china has that kind of uh, mentality or that audacity to get or to actually claim those islands because they know that they have influence with uh, uh, towards the asean nations specifically like trade relations china knows that most of these asean countries rely to them for trade and that chi- that china is actually one of their biggest trading partners and that they know that these smaller nations are actually afraid to offend them in case that china will break away any trade agreements and second i think china knows that the asean is not as united as it seems to be that yeah ASEAN countries still uh, still prioritize their own interests rather than as a collective regional organization and China actually exploited that so yes sir all right so as I what what I've understood it's more of a not really more of a rationalization but more of a display of uh, no it's something that I can do so you don't really have a choice so that that's really a good take on, on the matter in fact it's pretty much evident in china's participation very much in the asean and one of their really uh, regrets being part of the asean it's 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 inability to to really ascend towards a more supranational level in fact if you look at asean and its face value it's it's just like a a more regional version of APEC where it, the the strengthening factor of it is more of economic but if you put it in a more security and a more social context we're just being dictated by the ASEAN plus country states that are meddling with the regional affairs and that should not be the case really if it and to be to be clear for our viewers here it's not only the west philippine sea or it's not only the philippines that is affected by the nine dash line it's the other cn state member uh, member states like particularly on vietnam indonesia and malaysia and it's it's a regional uh if you look at it in the perspective uh china is uh interfering with regional affairs and and there's pretty much nothing that is said and done with an a regional organization that is asean which is something that should be something like eu in the first place so yeah that really shows how much power china is exercising and and the neglecting action of these member states really showed that uh rather encourages china to be so like they can they can come up with any so many illogical and inaccurate conclusions and then the result will be just no there's nothing you can do about it like you have to just deal with it it's something like that sad in reality and like we need to make bigger steps for it my other question is that currently in in the current foreign policy of the territory like it's it was clear perhaps it was somewhat it, there's never there's never really something clear in the territory's foreign policy but we were given initially the impression that we are pivoting to a more china-based or uh, china-russia uh centered relations but if you look at uh recent events right as uh, emman mentioned that there is a more uh, open Uh, relations like the 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 news to at least revive the the what do you call that again i forgot the the visiting forces agreement ah uh, yeah the vfa it's there is this move to revive the vfa and that shows about something that is not expected 
for for Duterte's administration. So, what are your thoughts about that? Why is this happening? And like uh, in your in your in your own analysis, like we were like pretty much sure to be China Russia backed uh, foreign policy, but what was this sudden shift in the more uh, catering to Western? powers in fact it was very clear with how colorful Duterte was with like uh, Obama's presidency uh, way back four years ago so what made them shift today I think history speaks for itself US became our I think our first what do you call that significant ally and US nodded us until we became a, na- a nation in 1945 I think Duterte has accepted the fact that he just can he just cannot say say the US can go away because he just can't say story. colorful curses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it, it it has been rooted in history. US has been helping us since since we were a colony of theirs and we were transitioning to becoming a nation. And I also think that he more like more or less that he has this rediscovered his senses once again and he thinks that be being too much focused on china will make will cause to cause us to see the philippines as a threat in the pacific and we all know that that china and the philippines are more la- more or less tied in the in the pacific and i think if the philippines ship ships to being at to being more to be more friendly with China I think it will tip the balance and it will sh- surely cause uh, upheaval within the Pacific all right so how about like seeing the future for the West Philippine Sea or in fact all marine disputes so do you see or do you guys based on what you've researched really uh, do you foresee uh, somewhat development for this or would you expect something pretty much the same in the following years knowing that uh, nothing really big is challenging China toward its claim with the nine dash line and pretty much US is trying to play safe with it and it's trying to just uh, not tip the balance or the, the peace that exists therein but the, the fact remains that it's constantly bullying the, the, the developing states who are uh, who have actually the exclusive rights of these waters and it's pretty hard really for us the Philippines to to assert sovereignty and to exploit it, its economic resources especially in and if you look at the, the origins of the joint exploration program it's more of a scientific joint exploration and now it's something that is uh, capitalized by the Chinese fisheries and and it's pretty much dominated by the Chinese Coast Guard and leaving our own fishermen a really uh, a very difficult situation. In fact, if you really would look at the culture that surrounds therein and in, in the disputed waters, it's more of a, a communal fishing ground, not just for the Philippines and China alone, but also the neighboring ASEAN states. So do you guys foresee a development for this problem? Like, for example, maybe uh, ASEAN really creating or using its regional uh, potential to at least assert its its own ruling on the West Philippine Sea. In fact, if uh, 
ASEAN could work simply uh, more in its uh, political might, it could actually uh, turn the tides with with who gets the authority to exercise exclusivity. Or would it be something that is filled with loopholes, once again, as, it, as in its current state, like simply how the joint exploration program makes it harder for uh, lawmakers and diplomats alike to really assert sovereignty on the West Philippine Sea. So what do you think is the future for this one, this, this problem? Um, I think unless the ASEAN has a unified voice with that issue i don't i don't see something significant that will happen to the west philippine sea if i can remember correctly the past discussion in is is2 one of the participating ASEAN, ASEAN states cambodia is a strong let's just say friend of china and that and that alone has barred the ASEAN from declaring that these are these waters belong to us the member states of the ASEAN and you you just cannot simply waltz in fish recla- reclaim some islands which cannot be really inhabited and just say yeah these islands are our are, are ours so yeah that's it us unified voice will make a huge difference in in the West Philippine Sea issue So, how would this also affect uh, China's role in the Security Council? In fact, one of the hardest challenges to really issue a, a complaint really on the Security Council is that China is one of the uh, permanent member states and they have the veto power at all. But would uh, a unified ASEAN body would somehow be able to at least assert its role that is somewhat even uh, affecting the Security Council themselves? Or would this be something of a more personal pursuit that is something that is ASEAN versus China that the United Nations simply cannot intervene because of its of how it's structured? I think, sir, it would be much uh, more like fair if it will be ASEAN versus China because it because you know yeah it's a fact that there's nothing that the United Nations Security Council can do because China is a permanent member and China can always exercise their veto power so if it's more if it's ASEAN versus um, China then there's at least like a fighting chance that the disputes would be settled favorably for all the uh, for all the parties involved because then because it would allow or it would it uh, it will make uh, other ASEAN countries re- uh, realize that if they will just like if if they will just let China take over these territories then there's a possibility that China would be would still be continuing what they do and worst case scenario is that nothing will be left for the countries to uh to nothing will be left for them in terms of like resources and that would also greatly affect their respective economies and stability in their countries all right so yeah i think that really wraps up 
all my questions for tonight and thank you guys for your wonderful insights in fact this is a really a very interesting discussion and i personally could talk hours and hours about this dispute alone and really would create many expectations but yeah that's the sad part it's all just expectations and wishful thinking but in reality and how difficult and how trivial international politics is even at a regional level really somehow breaks our hearts as enthusiasts in international relations in fact uh we are we are so engrossed with theory but once it's applied in real life settings uh it's not always the case that it should pan out just like how 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 idealistic we envision ASEAN would become and look at how it's its status now although i'm not saying that ASEAN is entirely useless but something like that in terms of the other dimensions which they have actually been aiming to achieve like uh, although they a lot of scholars would simply agree that it's impossible to create a, a, a social cultural ASEAN and just focus on economics alone. But but that potential really started uh, as me as uh, as an enthusiast, particularly on 2015 in the ASEAN integration, like seeing a more a supranational ASEAN would really pave better for for not just the Philippines but for the surrounding countries that involves therein. But but yeah, that's the reality. It's it's something that is perhaps as what as what literatures I've read, ASEAN is not pretty much keen on creating a more cultural identity for for the ASEAN member states. And if if there isn't really a cultural identity to really back us up for ASEAN and it's just pure economics alone, uh, I would really assert that solving the marine time dispute is something that is pretty much impossible. No matter how many uh, Hague rulings or how many uh, uh, cases that we file that we can actually win as long as that certain uh, power or state can really bully us to, to a certain extent in a more individual approach then that's not really easy for the Philippines to achieve. In fact, uh, it's a problem faced by the uh, other ASEAN members and the, the really potential to challenge it is uh, a regional cooperative or a regional front but it's yeah it's as i've mentioned it's pretty much complicated and all we can do is really theorize and do wishful thinking but it's also very important that we also try to at least be updated with the current events revolving such issue and we should constantly read up on these things otherwise we would just be surprised that the west philippine sea is never ours anymore and the nine dash line is something that's true but if we try to at least participate in these certain uh events and then try to make a voice out of it then our government will surely be uh pressured to at least focus on the international issues that affect us directly that's all i could say and how about you guys do you have any closing messages or remarks that you think is uh relevant to the discussion tonight Um, personally speaking, I think a huge change in the West Philippine Sea struggle would would happen if the China changes its leadership. Because personally speaking, I think the Chinese government has the strongest, let's just say, focal point 
in the West Philippine Sea and it and the government its government is it's always involved in these disputes I think if China goes for a leader which is more open more liberal I think I think this issue would let's just say be more smooth than what it is right now and things would go forward unlike right now we, we're still stuck in a never-ending game of tug of war how about you cherry um i think um, um if anyone wanted or hope for china's leadership to be changed for me i think the leadership here in the philippines as well needs also to be changed if because actually that the joint exploration um agreement was actually well there's always like the under the table like agreements like there's there's a lot of issues regarding that uh, on graft and corruption the, the kickbacks uh, of arroyo so i think that the philippines also should have i don't know the philippines should have leaders that would prioritize the interests of the country and as well as its citizens rather than expect or jeopardize its security and barter its rights for in exchange for money so yeah all right so very well said closing remarks and yeah i agree with all of them unfortunately we have very little time left so thank you emmanuel and sherry for your researched uh information that you've presented with us tonight and also your insights regarding the issue and yeah that's true that it's uh, a problem that will never be solved overnight in fact it's not going to be solved in the coming years to co- uh, in the coming years and but our awareness really uh, really merits us with it and our participation is something that is very necessary so for my listeners out there so at least say something regarding this issue otherwise if it's just uh lacking in terms of participation then underground and under the table negotiations can simply happen without our awareness all right so this has been the final episode for this series and in fact it's a very significant episode for the development of the philippines in its sense if we are not able to stand against a foreign power superpowers and what what uh what uh great we are as a sovereign nation if it's that simple alone we should uphold these principles of sovereignty and territoriality while it's possible to exist to let it exist in the first place so this has been philippine area studies and its final episode and this has been your host for the whole five months of discussing about the philippines in its entirety and since this is my last episode for the series and if there will be a continuation we'll never know so this is me officially signing off to everyone and still since it's covid season uh, in the time of the recording so i hope you stay safe stay healthy and stay in touch with your loved ones and stay social so thank you everyone and have a great day